All right, what is God like? What did someone tell you that is just brilliant that you need to tell the rest of us? Did anyone tell you something brilliant? Well, it, it's kind of that sort of a question, right? Where just there are all kinds of things that you should be thinking of and could be thinking of in response to that question. So we are in the process of reading this book and following the, the chapters of the book um, to know God. And uh, written many decades ago, it still is, is um, um, a book with, with currency for us as we seek to know God. So I want this morning to just to, to dig in a little bit to the two perspectives that we're realizing we're going to be uh, paying attention to. And that is that on the journey, there are those that are balconiers and there are those that are travelers. And both have a perspective or a set of perspectives. And Packer, at the beginning of the book, as he introduces it all, tells us that there are those who are on the balcony and there are those who are on the pathway, on the journey. And we might expect the balconiers um, to be described in pejorative ways, to be called just theoreticians or whatever. And we expect that the travelers will be celebrated because they're actually down there and living the life and, and moving along. But actually, both are really important to the Christian life. We need to know what the beliefs are of our faith, and then we need to put them into practice in our lives. If we don't know what the truths are, then we'll be motoring along, but we may be traveling aimlessly because we've not gotten the right commitments, the right destination, and the right stopovers along the way in, in mind. And if we are only on the balcony, um, we may just become full of knowledge, and that isn't a very practical thing for us either. So we need to listen to both and make sure that we are well-informed, but that we are traveling, that we're actually on the pathway. So I want this morning to take us to a passage in Isaiah chapter 40, in which we hear the two voices echoing. Um, as Isaiah challenges us, along with God's Old Testament covenant people, he challenges us on the matter of what we know about God and how right we are or how um, extensive we are in our knowledge of God, how fully we know what God is like. So here's Isaiah the prophet who is calling out to God's Old Covenant people, and he says, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now that would be enough for us to just sort of camp on for a while this morning. But I think this is, this is the voice of the balconier. This is the voice of someone who is calling down to the travelers and saying, you need to know this. You need to take this on board. You need to be committed to this understanding if you're going to live a life that is meaningful and a life that prospers in its relationship with God. So he says, do you know and do you put into practice your knowledge that all flesh is as grass? Um, I, I love Ash Wednesday services 
where you know the, the priest usually is putting a mark of the cross on your forehead and saying, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Because that's a really good reminder for us, right? We live our lives as though we will live forever. Um, I'm called on to, to conduct funerals, and they're always a very strange place to be. Because all of a sudden, there's a crowd of people who pretend that death doesn't exist, who are faced with death at the front of the room. And it's awkward for them. And we have these professionals called funeral directors, and they are awkward people. Just by definition, they're awkward people, right? Because we don't want to think about this, and we don't want to talk about this, and we spend all of our time on social media figuring out how we can take care of ourselves so the ultimate enemy doesn't ever come to, to claim us. We, we, we want to live forever, and we think we do, or at least we plan as though we will. And the balconier is saying, here's something you need to know from God. So we're, we're, we're clearing away something so that God's people can see where he is, who he is, and what he does. And the first thing that the balconier says is, all flesh is as grass. So it's lovely these days to take walks in the woods. So before the canopy grows on the, on the top of the trees, there are all of these lovely spring flowers that are coming up in, in the ground at, at the foot of the forest. But when the canopy comes, they will just disappear again. And they, they come and go pretty in their colors, pretty in their vibrancy, but they come and go. And Isaiah says, you need to hear this, that your life is like the grass. It springs up and then it disappears. I remember various places in the world that I've, I've gotten to travel, um, but there are places where uh, there is complete um, desert, and when a, a rain shower comes, the floor of the desert comes alive. But quickly, that same life dissipates. It, it disappears again. It's back to the brown and the yellow, and the, it just comes and goes. And the, the first thing the balconier is saying to us, I think, is this. Be sure that you understand that um, your flesh is like that. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So here we begin to get the little rhythm of, of this dance between the balconier and the traveler. The balconier says, do you understand that your life is like grass that sprouts and withers? If so, do you also understand that your God is coming and he's coming with might with his arm ruling for him, and his reward is with him, his recompense before him. So we, we need to understand that while our lives are like grass, we're also accountable with those lives because our Lord is coming, our God is coming, and he's coming with a reward. He's coming with his recompense. So not only do we forget to realize that our lives are brief, we forget to realize that we're accountable entirely for the lives that we live. Um, what Anne said is, is great, to have it tattooed. I, I can't believe a lady in church is endorsing tattoos like that. But take it to the Father, which is to say, keep, ever, keep the Father in mind every moment of the day. Remember we saw a few weeks ago, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, only fools despise instruction. 
So we commit ourselves to think first and foremost of our relationship with God, realize that our lives are brief, and say, how can I spend this life in its entirety working towards a reward? And then sometimes we say, well, that's, that seems a little mercenary. I mean, the, the Christian life shouldn't just be that you, you do these things so you'll get a reward. And that thought used to cross my mind until I, I discovered um, what the rewards are for. So when we get to Revelation, um, we're told lots of things about the rewards that are given and to whom they are given. Uh, we have various crowns that are explained to us. And what happens with those crowns is that upon receipt, we cast them at the feet of Jesus. So the reason, the motivation for reward, the motivation for living a life, brief though it is, with a view to it being rewarded, um, is that we have something to give to the Lord Jesus. It, it doesn't, we, we don't do it to, to earn our salvation. We don't um, give it to him to pay him back for our salvation. But it's when, when we look around and we are driven from the depths of our hearts to worship the Savior whom we see in Revelation as the lamb, that is the lion, um, this enormous vision of the Lord and the, the sort of the, the graphic depiction of what he has done for us, we look around to find something to worship him with and what we find is the crown that we've been given. And we take that and we, we give it right back to him. So there's the reason for the reward. So here, here you go, the balconier and the traveler are shouting back and forward. The balconier says, do you know that your life is brief? And the traveler says, I know that my life is brief, and I know that I live it in light of the coming of our God, because his reward is, is coming with him as well. We go on, and it says um, that the balconier, or we're imagining, is, is calling this down. And he's basically saying, let's, let's talk about God and how well you know who he is. Let, let's, let's talk about how big God is for you. So he, he, he gives this little sort of poetic rendering and says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, so yesterday, we were deluged with water, right? I mean, cars up to their, you know, halfway out their doors, flooding every place. Water, it, it just poured over us, right? That's a pittance. Then there are the oceans of the world. Then there are the lakes that are all too high this season. And Isaiah says, so God, the one whose coming you're expecting and for whose coming you are working for reward, that God in the hollow of his hand can measure the waters on the face of the earth. How big is that? It'd be great to do the math on that, wouldn't it? To, to plumb the depth of oceans and measure them coast to coast and say, how big a being would it be who holds the waters in the palm of his hand, in the hollow of his hand? Does he literally, can he literally? No, it, it's, it's, it's a figure of speech. It's, it's a way of trying to describe that this God is beyond size. So we, we begin to sort of get the, the measurements of the being that we're serving. He marked off the heavens by the span. 
So you go out at night, um, you go out on a lovely clear night and you, you gaze up into the heavens and you see the myriad of stars. And Isaiah says, well, this one who is our God, he takes the span of them all. So he's got all the waters in his hand and then he takes the measure, he takes the span of the sky and says, all right, that's the size it is. Those are the dimensions. Those are the uh, interrelationships between all of these incredible planets and, and bodies of, of material. He, he weighed, he calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. I mean, it, it, it's incredible. And he weighed the mountains in a balance. So I, I remember the first time I saw the Rocky Mountains, Having grown up in Ireland with what we called mountains, I was embarrassed. That, except they're more beautiful. The, the mountains of more, are more beautiful than the Rockies, just so you know. But when I saw the Rockies, and, and then I come to this, and I hear God saying that, that he can actually weigh the mountains. In a, it's, it's like he has a scale, and he weighs all of these mountains that are part of his enormous and glorious creation. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? How does God know what he knows? How can God do what he does? And then, and here's the rub, how dare we presume to tell him what he ought to be and do? What right have we to speak back to our creator? And Isaiah says, wait, wait, you, you want to talk back? You want to pull a job? Well, just think that this is the one who, in the hollow of his hand, can hold all of the waters. This is the one who spans the galaxies and knows everything that they are. This is the one who has weighed out the dust of the earth and put the mountains in proper balance. Who directed the spirit of the Lord? Who, who, ta who taught him? Who, who gave him this understanding? And we would do well to end up like Job saying, shut my mouth. I'm a fool. I'm an idiot to try to talk to God about what God should be like and what God should do. So, so I ask you, in, in the echoing back and forward between the balcony and the pathway, do we have a big enough God in, in our construct? Or do we have a God that we presume to use? So think about the way we describe our faith. Think about the way we describe church and all of that. And it, it's almost as though we have God coming cap in hand, saying, would you please worship me? Would you please give your life to me? And Isaiah says, God is coming, and you need to get your life in order, because the God who is coming is this God, who took counsel from no one, who has an infinite measure of ability and creativity and imagination and purpose. Now be careful how you think about him and be careful how you talk to him. It's not a, dear God, please give me the stuff I need. 
It's, oh God, what are you like? It's, it's more that we, we come silently into God's presence and gaze at him. We, we gaze at him every time we gaze at a lovely little flower. We gaze at him every time we gaze into the sky. We gaze at him every time we stare someone in the face and see that this is an image bearer. And, and we would do well to be quiet more, says he who's up here talking, right? We would do well not to try to describe him, but to gaze at him and be amazed and, and have our notion of him grow larger and larger and larger. One of the advantages of getting old-er is you realize you don't know anything. Because the, the, the reservoir of knowledge in, in every respect, you get to see that it's bigger than you ever thought. The longer you walk with God, the more amazement fills your heart. The more you will not have done with trite answers or silly little comparisons, the more you gaze at him, the more you realize how huge he is. The more you understand that his wisdom is infinite, and he's the one whom we show up to worship, and nobody taught him anything. So the balconier says, you need to make sure you know this stuff. And the travelers then in that context or with that perspective realize this. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Wow. Here we are listening to the news, watching and fretting over the affairs of nations, right? They're a drop in the bucket. And are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. So this God who weighs the mountains on the scales says, hmm, those nations that you think are in charge, are in control, those rulers, those parliaments the, that you think, they're a speck of dust on my scales. How, how much are the scales affected by a speck of dust? Not at all. And so God says, the world I created, those mountains, they make a difference on the scale, but these people that you worry about, they don't. Um, behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are seen as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Lebanon, with all of its forests, the cedars of Lebanon, um, Isaiah says there wouldn't be enough wood there to burn an offering appropriate to worshiping this God. There aren't enough animals there that would suffice to offer a burnt offering to this God. The nations before him are nothing. They are, they are nothing or less than nothing, and they are meaningless. Wow, it's, it's good that there's more to this chapter, because at this point we, we have a God who is huge and disinterested, right? He, he says, what you think is important, what you think is significant, let's, let's go back to where we started. You have a life that comes and goes. You'll be forgotten. So make sure you live that life for reward. Well, in what context do we understand that? We understand that in the context of this God creator who is huge, who 
is, who is beyond, beyond flesh being like grass. He, he is infinite, eternal. He precedes everything. Nobody told him anything. Nobody taught him anything. And as far as this world and its affairs are concerned, it means nothing to him. But Well, we're, we're going to see something more than that. But in the context of the sovereignty of this God and the sovereignty of us as human beings, living in the West, believing in the primacy of the individual, that everything is about me and for me. No. The balconier says, you should uh, just kind of take a break. You're, you're wandering down the wrong path or with the wrong head about that journey. It's not about you. Nor is it about the nations that seem to be shaping history. When it comes to that, they, they mean nothing to God. They're like a speck of dust um, that he, he can just swipe and have it disappear. They're regarded by him as less than nothing. So then to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, so Isaiah says, Let, let's, let's see what we do with religion, with these understandings. What are, you, what are you going to compare God to? He says, what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith places it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. See, the, the juxtaposition between the size of God, the creator, and the puny lives and efforts that we exert against him. So, so Isaiah says, what, what comparison are you going to make? Here's where we come a cropper on this. We are all reductionists by commitment. We, we, we want to figure things out. And then that's part of our humanness, right? We want to know what are the parameters, what are the terms, you know. Then we can say, ah, I know this. So, you know, we study things to get degrees and then we have mastered something. We even have a master's degree. And then we have a doctorate and we, we, we then are in charge of the knowledge that we have. We do that in theology as well and we, we call it doctrine. And in our doctrine we say there we have mastered the knowledge of God. We know what he's like. Even a book. I mean we're, we're doomed to fail when we write a book like Knowing God, brilliant as, as it is. Because once you close your computer or put your pen down and say the work is finished, you have done a disservice to the knowledge of God because there's no end to the knowledge of God. And when you tell people that if they will believe these 17 statements, they can be part of your faith or your religion, you have done them a disservice because those 17 things may be true, but those 17 things are not enough. We, we reduce our knowledge of God to these statements, and then we make creeds, and we make statements, and we make confessions, and, and they're all helpful to a degree. 
But when it comes right down to it, Isaiah says, what are you going to compare God to? How, how are you going to describe God? The, the right approach to this is an approach of worship that says, we will spend our lives gazing at him to learn what he is like by what he chooses to disclose to us. What has he told us in the sacred scriptures? What has he shown us in the person of his son? What has he shown us by salvation history in the way that he has dealt with humankind? Those are the things that we know, not because we have mastered them, but because they, they are catalysts. They're, they're kind of portals that open up vast fields of knowledge because the one that we're looking at is the one, right? He's got all the waters in the palm of his hand. He spans. That's who it is. So you can't describe him. You can't compare him adequately to anything else. And Isaiah says, and how pathetic is this? If you have enough money, you can make an idol of silver or gold or whatever. If you don't have enough money, then you can go get wood and you can find somebody. And if they're smart enough, they can make an idol for you to worship. Aaron was the first um, perpetrator of the crime of image making. So when Moses was away, um, the people said, where's where is this Moses character gone? He went up on the mountain, I don't know, a month ago. So we're getting anxious. And Aaron says, give me all of your gold. And he takes all of the gold that they bring him and he melts it down and he makes a golden bull. And he says, these are your gods who delivered you from Egypt. Now, what did he do then? Did he cause them to worship other gods? Not really. He violated the image commandment. Don't make an image of the true God. Because when you make an image, and Aaron did his very best, right? He got the best metal available to him. He chose the, the most representative animal, the, the bull, and said there, God is like a golden bull. In fact, these are your gods that delivered you from Egypt. The problem was that when he did that, he immediately created a false god and he led them into idolatry because he was trying to help them to worship the true God. And we have to be so careful. When, when we describe God in ways that are not careful, we lead people to worship that God. But, but if it's not him, if it's not the creator God, then who have we led them to? At whose altar are they now bending? When we say things about God that are simply on the face of them not true or upon investigation are not true, when we promise things that God will do for them that God never intended to give us a promise, then we lead people to worship some different God. And I think um, it, it, it bears examination in the West these days to wonder who the God is that we worship in, in the West, in North America. Who is the God as we describe him? Is it, is it this God? Or is it some other version of God? So, better not mess with that too much longer. The, the balconier says again, okay, just can we get this straight? Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. Are we, are we getting it right? How, how glorious and magnificent is this being? Wow, he's even bigger than we dared to think about. And what should we be doing in response? We should be very, very careful that we're living lives with God-attentive minds and hearts. Isaiah goes on, he says, To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. We don't even know the names of half of them, do we? Well, whatever we've learned in school. And, and we, can't, we can't see. The most of them are beyond what we're able to see with our best eyes and our best telescopes. And God knows every one of them by name. And, and he says, so you human beings who haven't figured out yet that you've only got three score and ten years to live, maybe more, um, who, who believe that you're immortal, who, who believe that the affairs of this, this earth are worth the heavens taking note of and worrying over and um, being perplexed over and scratching their heads over you, have you not been told that... This God looks at the nations and the things that worry you so much and he simply blows on them and they disappear. So we should be sure to get that right. Um, by the strength of his power, there's not one of them missing. No heavenly body disappears. God says, I know where they came from, where they're going. I know what their life is, I know what their half-life is, and, and all the rest. So then, here's what we are to do by way of application from all of this. Because now we're sort of, oh my goodness. So here's, here's the warm conclusion of Isaiah's um, poem, or, what, or whatever it is. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And it, now it comes as just a tender pastoral message from this prophet. Because God's people have said, he doesn't see us, he doesn't know us, he doesn't love us. We say, I feel as though I am far away from God. I feel as though my prayers don't reach the ceiling. I feel as though God has neglected me. I feel as though God has left me alone. And Isaiah says, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. But we say, I feel as though I've been given a raw deal. And I don't think God notices. And I don't think God cares. So a lady um, telling me her story of 
just a, a lot of sad things. She said, and, and do you know what God was doing all that time? He was sitting on his hands. And it, it is not my job to school people, but I, I just said, honestly, you, you'll know someday that he wasn't sitting on his hands. He wasn't sitting on his hands. He was, he was there. He was right there with you. And it wasn't all about those events and how they finished off here. It was about way bigger issues, way bigger things than that. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. So where are you in, in the struggle? Um, maybe, maybe you've kind of written God off by saying, I, I just don't think he's there or noticing or caring. And Isaiah says, Do you know, God never gets weary. He's never tired. So when, when people talk to me about how long they should keep praying, as, as long as you have breath, as long as you have language, God, God never says, oh, Wayne, would you get lost? Is it you again over the same thing? He goes, Wayne, come on. Because I'm never tired of hearing what you have to say to me. I, I don't doze off. I, I'm, I'm attentive. And if you are weary or tired yourself, um, he will give strength to the weary. And he will give power to those that don't have might. In fact, he likes that better when you come and say, I, have, I bring nothing. And he says, well, that's good. That's the right place to start. Power comes when you have none. Even though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly. Listen to this. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Isn't that? It's a beautiful end to this strange meditation on the disinterest of God, right? On, on the juxtaposition between what God is like and can do and has done and what we think is weighty and important. So we might expect to get to the end of this and end up simply as theists, people who believe in God, but believe that the God that is has no interest in us. But Isaiah won't leave us hanging there. He says, so why do you say he doesn't care about me? Do you not know that he, he never gets tired and he's your, he's your covenant God committed to you and whatever you need by way of exchange, he will give to you. If you need strength to hold on because you're confused still about what he wants and doesn't want, but you, you'll trust him. Um, if you need strength for that, he'll give you strength. Um, and even when the most vigorous among us get tired, God, he's not tired, and he will still give to those who wait on him um, wings like eagles. One of the lovely things about living in Vancouver um, was the bald eagles all over the, the West Coast. 
Um, and we were doing a retreat one time at, at UBC on the point of Vancouver. And we were meditating on um, mounting up with wings like, like eagles. And you know, somebody said, what does that mean? And at that very moment, we looked up. And there were two or three eagles soaring. And we noticed that their wings, in, in 15, 20 minutes, they never flapped their wings. And then somebody said it's because they, they get to a place, they get to a, a jet stream or an airstream, and they ride the wind. And, and God says, if you're tired out, would you rather be like an eagle? Right? Would you, I will give you the wings of an eagle, and my spirit will buoy you up, and you will fly in the stream of the spirit. Um, and you'll have enough strength, enough energy, young or old, because God loves to give that to us. So I, I wonder what adjustment you need to make today. We've, we've just stopped by a balcony, and it's a bit of a severe balcony, but we needed to hear the things that the balconier was saying to us. So some of us need to change what we believe about God. Some of us just need to say, wow, I better start opening my eyes and gazing at him to know him more accurately than I do. Some of us may need to adjust our values and say, boy, it seems as though the affairs of this world aren't as important as I thought they were, but my life and what it counts for is more important than I thought it was. Or maybe some of us need to say, boy, I, I think... I think I had charged God with something that he's not responsible for, and I need to repent of that and say, I, I do not any longer believe that you've forsaken me or ignored me. I know, I, I know that that's not your character. Whatever it is, let's not take another step or two until we, we listen well and say, okay, here's how it's going to be different from here on.